The following message is a presentation of Valley Metro Church, a community of believers dedicated to knowing God and making Him known. This morning, um, we're talking about getting back on track. And uh, funny thing about life, it, it doesn't take long, it seems, for us to have a plan, to have an aim, to have a goal. And before you know it, we do just kind of start getting off track. We don't mean to, but we just get off track. Like how many of you guys started out with a new year plan, a new year plan to do something really cool that was going to be life-changing? Anybody in the room? Can I get more honesty in God's house? Okay. Yeah. And how many stuck with it? Maybe it's a matter of health. Maybe you're thinking, okay, New Year's, I'm going to start exercising, I'm going to start eating better, and then by, you know, week three or four or five, we just maybe start to drift, get a little off track of what our aim was. Or maybe, you know, getting on track means to you, I'm going to continue my education, or I'm going to pursue these goals that I have. I've had these goals for a long time. I'm going to really get intentional about them because I've gotten off track a little bit. Or maybe, maybe it's a matter of your art. You, maybe you write, or maybe you... Uh, do music or do art of some kind of expression and you're thinking you know what it's time to get back on track with that and I think what happens over time if we're not intentional and we're not focused we simply get off track I know I've caught myself doing that I trust you have as well today and we see in the Bible it happens and the Bible's got a lot to say about getting on track how we get on track and also how we help others uh, get on track. And, uh, you know, uh, the Bible talks about that we're running this race. The, this, this life of faith that we have is like running a race and we need to keep our eyes on the prize. And just like a racehorse running the race, if our eyes are on the prize, we'll win. But if our eyes get very distracted, we also start getting off a course. That's why they put blinders on a racehorse so they can run to win. It's been said that the velocity of a river is determined by its banks. If a river has tight banks, it can be a raging river, amazing fresh water flowing so fast. But if it doesn't have banks, it can turn into a big stagnant pond just kind of sitting there, barely moving. And so there's something about being on track and being off track. And, uh, you know, I saw some kids running um, last, just this last week, and it reminded me when I was a little kid in New York City, um, uh, my family went up to the Catskills on a vacation because... When you live in New York City, you got to get out of the city once in a while to just do something. And up at the Catskills, you had all these families all on some kind of summer vacation. And I was probably about eight years old, but they got all the kids together to do this race. There was going to be a big race out in this field. I think they just wanted to tire the kids out, honestly. I think that's what they were aiming to do. But it was a big race. And they put the kids together in different age groups. And I was like with the eight and nine-year-olds or something like that. And you had to run down this whole big field and they had cones in the corner and the judges were up here and they were doing this competition. And so I remember like sizing everybody up, like I think I can beat him. I don't know if I can beat him. And oh, oh they look fast. Have you ever done that? Anybody competitive in the room? Kind of like, I don't know if I can pull this off. I hope so. So I'm like figuring this out. So finally, you know, they, 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 they shoot the gun with the fake, you know, cap in it and we're running like it's a big track. And so I'm running as fast as I can. And I notice, I notice out of the corner of my eye, this heavy set kid cuts the corner. And when I get around the corner, he's ahead of me and I'm not happy. So I'm running even faster and I pass him. I get to the next corner and he cuts the corner again and he's ahead of me. Now the problem is I had to do like three, four laps around this thing and every time I'd get ahead, he'd cut the corner and he'd be ahead of me. And at the end of the race, I'm slowing down. I finally pass him and he cuts the corner again. He gets ahead of me and he wins the race. And I'm frustrated because I gave it all I had. I got nothing left. I'm a little kid with nothing left. And finally they call the prizes and the guy said, you, son, come up here. And I go, me? And he goes, yeah, you won. And I said, didn't he win? And he said, no, he got off track, so he didn't win. You stayed on track, so you win. And I thought as a little kid, hey, there's justice. There's justice after all this. I had no idea. Did you know that the, the marathon, we have an LA marathon here. People come from around the world. There's marathons in other cities as well. There's a Venice marathon over in Italy. And people come from all around the world to race in the Venice Marathon. Just last year, just last year, the entire front of the pack, all of the lead runners, all of them, they went down the wrong road. And the local Italian guy is going, this is awesome. 
and he knows the track. He lives there. He's like, bye, and he keeps running. And guess what? He was the first Italian to win the marathon in 21 years because everyone went 300 meters in the wrong direction. It's hard to win when you get off track, right? If you get off track, you got to get on pretty quick again. And I think we all get off track. We're all capable of getting off track. The Bible has this honest, transparent conversation about getting on track. Maybe you came to the same conclusion I did. Maybe you lived your life for a while where you weren't even on a track. Was anybody not really on a track? I didn't even have tracks in my life. I'll just confess that to you right now. I came up with no tracks. I didn't have tracks. So Jesus, I come to discover, come to LA pursuing music, playing these clubs, and I realized that Jesus is who he said he is and that his word is real. And I didn't know that. It was a paradox to me. It was something that I once was blind, now I see. And I realized Jesus said, and it's true, he said, I am the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, I know you don't have a track, but I'm telling you, I'm the way, I'm the truth, follow me. And he has a, he has a track for us, a, a path. And it's not necessarily rules to follow. It's a lifestyle. And it's to turn from our track or trackless life and to get on track with him. Because we want to win, don't we? We want to win. And this is how we win. We win on, on track with Jesus. And so a lot of us don't, you know, have, have decided to do that. In fact, the early church, before they were ever called Christians, the word Christian wasn't even used until uh, Book of Acts, this city of Antioch, the early church wasn't called, they weren't called Christians. They were called people of the way. Say that with me, the way. The way. Why the way? Because they're following the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. The one who says, I know you don't have a track or your track was aimless. I have a track for you. It's a track of life. It's hope. There's a future. There's blessing. It's this way. Follow me. And everyone along the way, if you read the gospel accounts, realized their life didn't have a good track or it was kind of trackless or it wasn't uh, producing any fruit. And they finally said, okay, I'm going to turn, I'm going to follow you because you are in fact the way and this is where the journey begins. And along the way, he gives us his word, the word of God as a roadmap. He gives us a roadmap, gives us profound inside instructions to deep dimensions of things spiritual and even um, just sheer wisdom, total dimensions of how to navigate life because he gives us a roadmap and, and he gives us a compass by giving us his Holy Spirit. And if you have a map and a compass, if any of you were ever a boy scout or in the army or did any kind of survival at all or a girl scout or anything, you know if you have a map and a compass, you can pretty much get out of anything. You guys realize that? Map and a compass. You can spin you around blindfold, you drop you off in the middle of nowhere, and typically if you've got a map and a compass, you can line them up, figure out there's the sun, this must be me, and that must be the way out. And that's what the Lord did. He said, turn and follow me, I'm the way. He gave us tools, but even with these tools... Sometimes we can find ourselves getting off track or we can find people around us who we love, who we care about getting off track. And does God, we might not have an app for that, but God has an app for that. When you get off track or when I get off track, God loves us so much. He has, a, he has a method of getting us back on track. And if you have your Bible, if you could turn to Matthew chapter 18, we are teaching through this book of Matthew right now. It's been an epic journey. Uh, we learn about love. We learn about faith. We learn about freedom. We learn about healing. We learn about all these powerful dimensions of God's love. And today, today, Jesus is trying to tell us something about when we get off track or others get off track, are we willing to do our part with God to help others get back on track? And this is important because guys, what if I get off track? Is anyone going to help me? What if you get off track? Is anyone going to help you? Do we care about that? Because we should. Because a lot of people today say, that's oh, not really my issue. I'm just worrying about my own thing right here. I got my own issues going on. And the family of believers is supposed to act a little different. We're supposed to act like a family of believers. If you're a parent in this room and you have children and your children aren't getting along, is that a low-level issue or a very high-level issue to you? Low or high, parents? It's a high-level issue, absolutely is, and it is to our Heavenly Father as well. When children aren't getting along, when there's some sort of disruption, when there's some kind of somebody's off track, and what happens when people get off track? It's like two cars going down the freeway. Someone gets out of their lane, and usually they hit somebody else. In LA, on the 101, you pretty much will hit somebody if you get out of your lane, or the 405. You get out of your lane and usually there's another car there and you're going to hit. So you've got to stay in your lane. It's the same thing in our walk in life. 
We're walking this life. We're walking it out in faith. We're walking with God. But what happens? We get off track and sometimes there's a little collision and somebody's getting dented and bruised and dinged. The Bible refers to it as sin. Sin is falling short. Uh, The Bible uses a few different words. Trespass, step over a boundary. I was in this lane. I'm supposed to be in this lane, but I, I got out of my lane. I got into your lane. And what happened? Somebody got a big dent. Whose fault was the dent? Uh, it was my fault. I got out of my lane and I hit you. And the Bible talks about that. The Bible has a word for that too. It's called iniquity. It's when you get out of the lane and you hit somebody, there's mud that flies. There's problems. There's fallout. And the fallout is there's the iniquity. So there's the trespasses getting off track. And the iniquity is the fallout that ensues. And in your life and in my life, anytime we're in a relationship, this is a marriage, this is friendships, this is in the church, there's going to be relational ebbs and flows. There's going to be relational pushes and pulls. There's going to be relational, oops, I think I'm out of my lane, I think I'm in yours. And if you hit somebody, oh, forgive me, I'm sorry for hitting you. No, it's cool, let's move on. And we keep, this is, there's a lot of grace, right? We need to have, how many, how many need grace in the room? We, need, we all need grace, guys, because we all get out of our lane from time to time. But the Bible's talking about a pattern of somebody getting out of their lane again and again and doing a little bumper cars and keep hitting people and not, not working on the issue and causing problems to others around. So although the Bible tells us that we are supposed to have forbearance and grace with one another and we need to be in a gracious environment with one another, God knows we all need that, there are certain patterns that tend to cause problems for people repetitively. And the Bible starts talking about, listen, if someone's sinning, if someone's running into you and they're, they're in the church, they're in the family of believers, they're supposed to know better, they're supposed to act like they're in the family, and they could seem to care less and they keep crashing people. Well, God wants, to, wants us to work with this guideline to help people get back on track. And why this is important, there may be a day where you need to get back on track. There may be a day... I need to get back on track. And I trust if we use God's plan, his methodology, his timeless truth for what it takes to get people back on track again, you won't mind it and I won't mind it. In fact, there'll be a lot of fruit uh, involved. And that's what we're going to look at today. Again, this applies to all uh, relationships when we get off track. Um, If you want to turn your Bible, Matthew 18, we're going to pick it up in verse 15. But before I start, I just want to tell you this short story about uh, these two brothers And these two brothers, um, they had two farms and they lived right next to each other. They had their houses uh, right here in the middle. They had a beautiful meadow in between them. And they helped each other all the time. They were best of friends. They shared equipment. They helped each other with their harvest. These guys were the best of pals. But one day, one day, the little brother said something to the older brother. And the older brother took offense to that. So he, in turn, responded with something back. And before you knew it, uh, the other brother says, well, I'm not even going to help you plow your field. And the other guy's like, don't even, I'm not going to help you either. And before you know it, the little one says, don't even talk to me. And the older one says, don't talk to me either. And, and this is getting worse and worse. And this 40-year amazing relationship is going downhill really quick because this has been an offense and no one's been able to mend it. And as time goes on, the older brother gets a knock on the door and... Uh, he opens the door and, and he sees it's a carpenter and he's like, hey, can I help you? He's like, hey, I'm just here for a day or two. If you got any extra work for me, uh, I'll do it. And the older brother says, yeah, I got a job for you. See that house? That's my younger brother's house. We haven't talked in ages. We used to have a beautiful meadow in between us. But he took his bulldozer and he rammed it right through the middle and, and made a marsh down there. It's all filled with water. He separated us. I tell you what I want you to do. I want you to go down there, take all that wood and these supplies, I want you to build me a 10-foot wall so I don't even have to see him or his house again. And the carpenter says, I'll, I'll take care of things. I'll make, it, I'll make it better for you. The older brother goes off to the town for the day. And when he comes back at the end of the day, he's astonished. His jaw drops. He says, I can't believe this. You didn't build a wall. You built the bridge. And as he looks down at the bridge, he sees the younger brother out on the bridge waving. So he walks down in dismay to the bridge. It's got handrails and everything going right over that little marsh that was built. And the brother says, oh, brother, you're awesome. After all I put you through and you built a bridge like this, you're amazing. Let's just bury the hatchet and let's, let's start all over again. And they asked that carpenter, wow, I can't believe what you did here. Can you stick around a little longer? And he says, no, I have to move on. You see, there's a lot more bridges to build. Amen? 
How many of you know in your life, someday we're going to stand before God and he's not going to ask us how many walls we built, but he will ask us how many bridges we built. And if we care enough about people, we'll build a bridge. God's got a way for us to build a bridge. We talked last week about Jesus leaving the 99 to go after the one. And now he's talking about this. In other words, will we, when people get off, do we love them enough to tell them the truth? Do we care enough? If we're off, do they love us enough to tell us the truth? Christianity is not about perfection, but it is about direction. We're not a perfect people. We all sin and fall short. That's why we all need a savior. But if someone is off course and they're making a lifestyle at it and they don't, do we love them enough to help them? And if we get off or when we get off, will somebody come and help us? And I hope we can live in a grace-filled environment where we do things God's way and, and be able to do that. So let's jump in, Matthew 18, we're going to look at verses 15 through 20 this morning about getting back on track. And it starts out like this, it says, uh, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you, and if they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that, quote, every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them, as, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Let me set up the context of this here. This is talking about behavior for the family of believers. Everyone say behavior. Behavior for the family of believers. When we mess up, there's grace. There's mercy because we all fall short. But someone's got a problem where they're crashing into people and they're causing harm. And they're either clueless to it, they don't know they're doing it, or they don't care that they're doing it. And, and, and God is saying, in my family, I'm a God of order, and I have an order for this. And this is what I've seen. If we do things in God's order, listed here in Matthew 18, I have seen again and again the fruition of doing it this way. I have also seen from personal experience and seen in others' lives, when we don't do it this way, I've seen some fallout from doing it the wrong way. And so uh, he's talking about how we behave. God's a God of order. Uh, he's talking about when somebody sins. Uh, he's not talking about preference or he's not talking about style or desire. People around you are not going to fit your style, your preference, or your desire. We're not talking about being offended. And you'd be surprised. Some people get very offended because the style or desire or preferences of people around us. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about sin. They've stepped over the line and they crashed you in some kind of way, shape, or form. It was... Something bad, either no recollection of it or not going to apologize for it, or they continue to do some kind of harmful behavior. That's kind of what this is talking about in the family of believers. And um, God is saying, listen, if someone is in the family, I mean, the world acts the way they act, and some people have a different moral barometer on what they do or don't do. That's a different story. But if people are in the family of believers, there's, a, there's an expectation of behavior, not perfection, but direction, that we are following the one who is the way, and we, we, we don't make any excuses for sloppy agape. Tell somebody next to you, no sloppy agape. Tell them. Sloppy agape is like, I'll just do what I want. I'll love the way I want. I'll wreck things the way I want. It's like, no sloppy agape. So God is saying, listen, this is the way we do it. We've got a method of doing things in the family. And this is saying that as, as Christians, uh, this is something we're supposed to do. If somebody around you that you love and you care about is crashing into things and people, especially in the church, you have kind of an obligation, according to scriptures, to go after, leave the 99, go after the one and help them back on track. That's the context of what Jesus just talked about. Leaving the 99, going after the one and helping get them back on track with God again and, 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 and a faith-filled lifestyle. Let me ask you this question. Do you love people enough to direct them in the truth? Do you love people enough to direct them in the truth? Because I know personality-wise, some people will say, well, this isn't, <laughs> this isn't my style. This isn't for me to say. This is not my style. I don't like confrontation, and I'm not going to do this. Uh, I know that's a natural reaction for many people, but I'm just telling you, if you love people enough Will you tell them the truth if you love them enough? Uh, if my kids want to run out in the street and I know it's not good for them, I love them enough to say no. I know it's not what you want to hear. But I love you enough to tell you, no, you cannot go in the street. You might be mad at me for it. You might not like me for it. But I love you enough to tell you the truth. 
If my kids want to get up and have Coca-Cola and cake for breakfast, uh, which we don't have in our house, do we, hon? Um, but uh, all that to say is, you know, even if they get angry, the answer is no. I love you enough to tell you the truth. And in the family of believers, there's supposed to be uh, uh, this, this reality that we, do we love people enough to tell them the truth? Uh, do, do people love us enough to tell us the truth? What if I'm off? Again, this, this is a two-way thing, guys. What if I'm off? What if you're off? Do people love you enough to tell you the truth? Do you want them to tell you the truth? We should. If we're in the family of believers. I'll tell people, if you see something I'm not seeing in my life, especially a pattern, this is not walking around after people and seeing what everyone's doing. This is not being a hypocrite. This is simply a grace-filled environment of the family of believers, which is all full of grace. Freely you've received grace, freely you give grace. But somebody intentionally keeps crashing and they're causing a problem. They call themselves a Christ follower and they're not coming to terms with it and they're hurting people or hurting you and they're not owning it and they're not changing and it's a problem and it is sin and it's in the family of believers. And do we love them enough to tell them the truth? If we were the one crashing, whether we knew it or not, whether we knew we were bumping the next lane or not, maybe we're clueless, the radio's loud, we don't even know, we're, but if we did, don't we want someone to tell us? And that's the context of this scripture here. Listen, it's not our job to fix anyone, just lovingly direct them back on track. It's not their job to fix us, but to lovingly direct us back on track. Do you see in the aim, this is how this is framed? If we don't frame it this way, it might sound, what am I supposed to do, walk around? No, we don't follow people, we don't point out everyone's sin. The only one who sees everything is the Holy Spirit. We're not the all-knowing ones. God sees all, and someday we'll stand before him and give an account. It's not our job to track people down, follow, see what they're... That's not it at all. It's never been the mind of God, and we don't see it modeled in the church. But in the family, when somebody keeps crashing somebody, is someone going to say something? Or are we going to go, it's not my job? Scripture is saying, actually, it is. Step into this role. Understand God's a God of order, and he has an order. He has an app for that of helping people get back on track. So what happens if someone sins against you again? They stepped over the line, they trespassed, they caused a mess of some kind, they caused some kind of wreck, somebody got a dent and somebody got hurt. And, um, and so here's, here's a step. I want to give you seven quick steps. And you're not going to learn this in a psychology book, um, but you are going to learn it in the Bible today. Uh, psychology's got some great aspects of behavior and how people um, behave. But I just want to tell you, um, God wrote his book way before any psychology book was written. And I believe God's word is true on how we deal with relationships, specifically in the family believers. And I got seven quick steps of how if I get off, you guys can help me get on track. If you get off, how somebody around you can help you get on track. If someone else you know that calls themselves a believer, how you can help them get on track. And this is God's way of doing it. The first one is this. Let's take the log out of our own eye first. Amen? Can we get a bigger amen to that? Okay, this is important because we don't want to be hypercritical of anybody. We all need grace and we all sin and fall short and that's why we all need a savior. And that's why we don't want to be a Pharisee, which Jesus accused the Pharisees. He never accused people of this, only the Pharisees who were very religious, critical of everybody else, but not critical of themselves. And Jesus used that concept about taking the log out of your own eye to Pharisees. He wasn't using it to the regular lay folks because they weren't walking around with a microscope, but the Pharisees were. And so the first, the first step is to take the log um, out of our own eye first. And that's out of Matthew 7, 5, where he tells us in Scripture, take the log out of your own eye. Before you go point something out to somebody, check yourself. How many heard check yourself before you wreck yourself? That's what it's saying. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. Check your own self first before you go approach someone. I think that's a healthy way to start any kind of dialogue because we're all sinners that need a Savior. And you know what that does? It begins to level the playing field, doesn't it? You're not coming to somebody on a high horse. They're not coming to you on a high horse. You're just coming low. Everybody tell somebody next to you, come in low. Come in low. Come in low. Don't come in high. You come in low. So take the log out of your own eye. This is not about giving someone a piece of your mind. This is not about giving someone a piece of your mind. I've talked to people. I gave them a piece of my mind. I'm like, that's not the way you do it. <laughs> that's a high horse. I'm going to get them back. They hear it. No, that... Don't give someone a piece of your mind. Come in low. This is not about venting. This is not about fuming. This is about lovingly help someone get back on track because you care about them. You love them. You care about them. And you don't want to see them live the rest of their life off track, crashing people, causing dents and bruises and chips and dings and, 
shrapnel and paint going flying because they're off track and they don't care or they don't know. And, and you, do you love them enough to tell them the truth? And if it was me or you, would they love us enough to tell us the truth? I hope so. I hope we're in a grace-filled community where if somebody has patterns, that somebody loves them to help them out. I mean, this is God's heart, guys. This is the way it's supposed to be. The second one is this, guys, is to invite accountability as a two-way street. Invite accountability as a two-way street. If I have to have a difficult conversation with somebody and it's relational and it has to do with behavior, like it says in Matthew, what I typically do when I encourage this uh, have you ever seen military movies where uh, the sergeant calls somebody in or whoever it is, is like, all right, soldier, what's the deal here? And the soldier, if he wants to be brutally honest, if he wants to have a transparent conversation, if he wants a level playing field, he will say, permission to speak freely, sir. Have you heard this? Permission granted. Awesome. Now we get the formality where we can be real with each other. No high horse anymore, is there? Permission to speak freely. If you're in environment accountability, it's a two-way street. And basically what you're telling people from the beginning is, hey, listen, we all fall short. I know I do. And I will begin a conversation. I will usually begin the conversation saying, listen, if you see a pattern in my life, a pattern, you've got a green light. You can come and tell me. You can come and talk to me. We don't follow people around with everything. But if you see a pattern and I'm getting out of my lane, I'm crashing people, you can tell me. I I'm okay with that. Well, I'm not going to be all defensive. You, you can come with the right attitude, but yes, tell me. And I hope I can come and tell you. And that's a level playing field that's checking our log in our own eye first, and that is accepting a mutual accountability before we begin a conversation. There's permission to speak freely, and it's a beautiful way to begin. You give them permission too. The scripture behind that one is James 5.16 that says this, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you'll be healed, healed. Some of the healing we need more than anything is relational healing. You realize that? Relational healing is monumental. There are people that go through relational issues in their upbringing within a four or five year span that spend the next 40 or 50 years working out the issues. You realize that? There's young formative years where relationally things can be parents, could be anything that they can spend the next 50 years trying to work them out. Relational things need healing. James says, Confess, talk, come level, come in low, be accountable, put the guard down, be real, be brutally honest, be raw, and can be able to say these things to each other, to one another. That's not my job. No, it is our job. Jesus, in the story of Cain and Abel, comes in and asks this rhetorical question, you know, and, and talks to them about what, what their job is. And Cain tries to answer God back, actually, with a rhetorical question. He said, what am I supposed to be? Am I my brother's keeper? Is that my job, God? Am I my brother's keeper? God's like, yes, sir, it is. <laughs> it sure is. And you know it is. And sometimes we don't want to do it because we're afraid of dialogue, confrontation. It's not my style. And if you do it this way, this is God's way. I believe this is an order that he blesses. So first, take the log out of your own eye, Matthew 7, 5. Second is to invite accountability as a two-way street. James 5, 16 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. This works great in a marriage too. You get in a little glitch with your spouse. All right, hon, let's work through this. You talk, well, I thought you meant this. Okay, so what I did wrong there was this. Oh yeah, what I did wrong, oh, this is wonderful. Let's pray. Wow. You think that's a better marriage as a result or a worse one? Hallelujah. Because God knows how to put things back on track. And these are his principles right here. And remember, this could be us. Somebody might need to come to us someday. This is not a high horse thing. What if someone's got to come to us with a pattern? Are we even open to this thing? Are we open to some mutual accountability? Because there's an awful lot of one another's in the Bible that talks about this mutual accountability we're supposed to have in this family of believers as the father looks down at his children. I love this scripture. It's 1 Corinthians 10, 12. It says this. If you think, well, that's not me. It's somebody else, but I'm good in my walk. I'm on track, but maybe others aren't. Listen to what it says, 1 Corinthians 10, 12. He who thinks he is standing firm, be careful lest you fall. When you think, I'm good, I'm on track, I'm not off, I see others are, but I'm not. The Bible is saying, whoa, 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 be careful. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. We've seen people walking with God a long time, and then all of a sudden you're like, what, what happened? Well, 
they weren't careful lest they fall. They think, I'm good. I'm stable. Nothing's going to get me off track. It's like, well, we always got to be mindful of where we're going, and we ought to be around people that love us enough to help us. And when we shut that wall down and we're not accountable anymore and we're not transparent with people around us, we're going to be a legend in our own mind. We're going to start thinking about whatever justifying what we want to do and we need that accountability. Step number three in this passage tells us by God's instruction, go directly to that person. Write that one down. Go directly to that person. Somebody is crashing into you, you go directly to that person. Know what that means? Not to their friends or to their Facebook page. Not to their friend. Let, let, this is prophetic this morning. <laughs> Not to their friends or their Facebook page. How many of you read chatter on Facebook that didn't belong there? Huh? Stuff that doesn't belong there. Somebody not going to the person but venting a different way and people completely abuse, even believers, totally missing God's order of dealing with any, any encroachment, any crash, any ding, any chip, any bruise, any hurt, any, just forget it, who cares? I'll just blast it to social media and I'll send it to everyone I know and they're going to know I'm right and they're wrong. It's not the heart of God and it's not the heart of the family of believers either. So we got to be careful on that. Not to their friends, not to their Facebook page. This is really important. Um, this isn't griping and gossiping to others. The first thing a lot of people do is I'm just going to go, and before you know it, you're talking about what happened to a lot of other people. And the Bible's got an order, and there's an order for it for a reason. So this is not even under the guise of sharing a, a prayer request. It's not a guise of, of uh, uh, say the ladies get together. I'm just using the ladies for a moment because a lot of ladies, more women show up at prayer meetings than men. It shouldn't be that way, but this has been my observation. It's not like, oh, pray for Janet's husband because boy, oh boy, did you hear what he did last week? Yep, he did it again. What did he do? Oh my goodness, this time. Oh, really? Oh yeah, we got to pray for him. What else did he do? Well, he did this. And we're going to pray though. Don't worry in a minute. Let me finish the list. Uh, and, and then before, it's like <laughs> under the guise of a prayer request, we're doing the same thing under a guise of a prayer request. So not put it to social, not post it, not vent to others, not under the notion of seeking counsel. I've seen this done where, uh, can I get your advice on something? I got a problem with, uh, you know, uh, Bobby over here and say, you know, Bobby, you know, he did this to me. What, what should I do? Oh, that's good. Hey, 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 Tom, let me ask you. I got a problem with Bobby over here. And before you know it, you're going around getting counsel from all these people about what the issue was under the guise of counsel or prayer. Instead of just going to the person, Instead of looking in your own eye and accepting a mutual accountability and go to that person directly, this is really important. So we speak directly. And the reason we do that, there may be a misunderstanding. If you do this, you might talk to them and go, oh, is that what you were thinking? And they might go, yeah. And you might go, oh my goodness. I, I thought you like were meaning to do that. I didn't even know I was doing it. I'm so sorry. Sorry. Uh, okay, thanks. I'm glad we worked this out. Because that's why you go directly. See, if you go the other way, you've just vented it to the whole world. And the whole world believes the narrative. And we never even gave the person the opportunity. And guess what? If I was that other person, or you were that other person, you would certainly hope and pray they came to you first to work out the misunderstanding, wouldn't you? Rather than going to everybody else. And that's why God has an order in his family for doing this. So you speak to somebody directly, just you alone, nobody else. If you do more than one person, the first time you've got to have a dialogue, this can be incredibly overwhelming. Somebody can feel like they're cornered or they're rushed or you had a big conversation with all these people and they all roll up on you to have a conversation. That is incredibly overwhelming and that's not God's order for that. Uh, sometimes, guys, the intention can be right, but the order can be wrong. The intention can be right, but the order can be wrong. I've seen this happen. I've seen it in my own life where something is out of control, like in a way where someone's got to say something, and you're talking to a few people, and they're all agreeing, and then you roll up on somebody and go, hey, can we talk to you for a second? That sounds very well intended, but it's not this order, and it feels like someone's being cornered, and it's a little overwhelming, and it doesn't really, sometimes it manifests itself in, in, in ways. No one wants to be uh, approached by a group if you were never given a transparent opportunity. Wouldn't you agree with that? Okay, and the Bible does as well. And that's why we do it uh, this way. And so uh, uh, the fourth one is this, guys. Pray for understanding, humility, and repentance where it's needed. Pray for, this is not proving someone's wrong. This is not justifying or venting. This is sincerely praying, God, 
Help there be understanding. Maybe when you meet him, can we talk? Can we be honest with each other? All right, let's pray. Lord, give us understanding. Give us humility. And if any of us are wrong in any way, help us come to terms with that. We all want to be on track. Two-way street, God. That's a beautiful way to start. This way, it's not a high horse thing. And I'm going to come and set you straight. Or they're going to come and set you straight. You come low. You come with humility. You come with transparency. You come with accountability. And you come with prayer asking for humility and understanding because God can do so much with humility and understanding. And with pride, he can't really build anything, but he can build amazing things uh, that way. And step number five is to speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. That's Ephesians 4.15. Speak, the Bible says we're supposed to speak the truth in love. And again, some people like, it's not my style. I don't want to have a conversation. I'm not confrontational. It's like, well, guess what? You've been dinged and you keep getting dense and someone's in the family of believers, and they're supposed to know better, and their behavior is not God-honoring, and you're just looking the other way, and at some point, you're supposed to help people get back on track. Again, we're not running around with a magnifying gas, looking for the people doing things wrong, but when you and I have a pattern of getting out of our lane and crashing people, somebody ought to say, hey, you know what, bud? You keep crashing people. I do. Either I didn't know it, or I didn't care I was doing it. And someone needs to tell me, I need to care I'm doing it, because it's hurting people next to me. You see how this works? This is God's order, guys. So um, speak the truth in love. That's where you say, okay, I, want, I just want to shoot straight with you and you can shoot straight with me. Here's the truth in love. I love you. I'm not venting on you. I'm not yelling at you. I'm not taking this opportunity to give you a piece of my mind. This is what I see. This is what I've observed. And here's the pattern. It goes like this. Boom. I love you. And I, I just want to see you not be in this pattern because I love you. If I didn't care, I wouldn't tell you anything. But I love you. And I want, to see you, I want to see us soaring on track better than this. We, we're, we're, we're made for better things than this. And so speak the truth in love. And the sixth step is this, guys, is pray, pray, and give time for God to work on the hearts involved. When you come to somebody and you speak the truth in love, give time for God to work on hearts. Maybe you've seen issues come up with behavior and maybe you take it to the Lord in prayer. And how many have seen God change things just through prayer? Anybody say, there wasn't even a conversation yet. Hallelujah, God. How many of you know it's the Holy Spirit that convicts of sin and righteousness? The Holy Spirit does that. So the beauty is you go, God, there's this thing, there's crashes and dents. Would you please help, you know, you know Billy realize he keeps crashing everybody all the time? Like, and sometimes the Lord does, it's beautiful. But now you've done this order and you've, you've spoken to him because you love him and you care and you're honest and you're transparent or they spoke to you about something. Um, then let's give it time for, God, are you going to work on hearts? Because sometimes people need to be alone and with God for God to say, they're right about that, Pastor B. What they told you, they're right about that. And you're like, okay, Lord, you got my attention. And how many of you know this whole process of working, walking with Jesus, we're always repenting, which means turning. Have you guys realized that? Anybody else in the room? We're always turning. None of us have it down. It's, we're turning every day going, you know, the, we all like sheep go astray, each to his own way. And that's what we looked at last week about the 99, the wandering. We all wander. We all get off. So it's not perfection, but it is direction. And when we get off, can someone talk to us? Is that a bad thing? Does it have to be this phobic thing? Does it have to be this taboo? It's supposed to be normal lifestyle. If you have friends and family, they love you enough. You're supposed to be able to have conversations with your family. And that's what this is about with one another. So pray and give time for the Lord to work. And now here's the deal. Sometimes, sometimes they had no idea what they did. I've seen this. They had no idea. Or somebody comes to me, I'm like, really? What? I, I didn't, what, what? what? And, and literally you had no idea what they're talking about. And you're like, I am so sorry. If you thought, if you thought when I said that, if you took it that way, I am so sorry. I could say, well, too bad, get over it. I didn't mean it that way. Right? This is what some people do. Or I could sit and say, for you, I got out of my lane and crashed you. Even though I didn't feel like I did, you got a dent. You're the one with the dent. And you're coming to me saying I caused the dent. We pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass. If I caused a dent in you, I don't care if I meant it or not, I am sorry. Would you forgive me? And all of a sudden, whew, wow, what a beautiful way to mend, build bridges and and build relationships. Here's the cool thing. This passage is talking about um, if there's this open dialogue and there's repentance and we can have a conversation with this, if people, uh, if they listen to you, the Bible says you've won them over. 
You've won them back over to the Lord's path, to the Lord's track. We're back on track again as a family of believers going down this, this road of God's order and God's blessing. And this is where the life is, guys. He's the way, the truth, and the life. It's over here. So we win them over if they listen. If we're the one out here, on the, and they, they win us over. And that's, we want to win each other over. This is a good thing. But that means that somebody had to be humble and teachable. Otherwise, there's no winning over. If people posture, hold their position, and defend, there's no humility and there's no teachability. And I will tell you one thing. The day you stop being teachable is the day you start going in reverse in this Christian faith. Uh, none of us have arrived. Uh, we have to remain teachable. Teachability is a key component of the walk when we walk with God. We're always learning. We're always growing. None of us has it down. None of us has arrived. We're just walking along with the King of Kings and He's, he's the Master and we're the disciples and He's teaching us and showing us all the time. And, and this is uh, the reality. We all have to be teachable. And if you get to shoot straight with somebody, and if you get to work through an issue, you know what happens? You have even a better friendship. Remember the story of the two brothers with the bridge? I just talked about earlier. Instead of building a fence, they built a bridge. Do you think they have a better friendship than before or a worse one? When a marriage goes through something and they're willing to be humble and come, you think they have a better relationship or a worse one? It's the same thing with the family of believers. When you're willing to work through something, Thank you for caring about me and thank you for helping me or thank you for, you might say thank you for helping me, whatever the case might be. When we help each other, you, you win them over. That's a win in the kingdom of God. In the eyes of Jesus, that is a straight up win. You have a better relationship. But sometimes, sometimes people don't want to hear it and they want to continue in a pattern. And, you know, I just will say this. Um, when we talk about what is sin, what is how are we going to qualify that? What are we going to quantify that as? Um, you might just write this down. I, I found this to be the best simple explanation of not getting into semantics and splitting hairs over that kind of thing because we don't want to live in that kind of zone. Quite simply this. Write this down. God-honoring behavior. Is that behavior God-honoring or is that behavior not God-honoring? That's pretty easy. Most people would say, well, huh, yeah, no, it's not. Okay, great. That's all I'm talking about. When, when, when we behave in a way that's not God-honoring, we, we cause damage to people around us. And when we, when we behave in a way that is God-honoring, we tend to give life and be part of the blessing and part of the solution. And so that's pretty easy to figure out if things are God-honoring. To me, it, it clears the smoke and it makes things a little bit more clear in what we're talking about offenses happening uh, along the way. But some people, they might continue to justify their behavior and go the same way. The Bible says at that point, listen, you have to go back at that point with another brother or another sister. Ladies, if it's a gal in your life, take another gal with you. Guys, if it's a guy, take another guy with you. And you take another guy with you or another gal with you who also love that person. Again, this is, no one's got anything to prove. No one's given a peace of mind. No one's venting on anyone. We're coming in low, but now we're coming in in two because we already prayed and we already tried, or at least you did, and you already prayed and you try to have a meeting of the minds and a meeting of the hearts and... You gave, you gave God time and room to work and someone's in the family but still doing reckless things, not, not God-honoring things that are causing collisions, still happening. But do you love them enough now to do step two in Matthew 18, which is to come back with a brother or come back and a sister? And this would be somebody who loves them, somebody has some biblical understanding, and somebody who probably knows the situation because they, the, they see the crashes too. Maybe they've also been crashed by the same person. Do you see how this works? Um, some of uh, you might know this as accountability. Um, excuse me, you might know this as uh, um, uh, intervention. Some people refer to this as intervention. I want to just say, uh, it wasn't a 12-step idea. Jesus invented it with his 12 2,000 years ago. Amen? This is the first intervention in the Bible. Jesus is teaching us 2,000 years ago in Matthew 18 about if you tried it this way, do you love them enough to come in low with somebody else who also sees what you see. And the reason we come in with somebody else at this point is because Bible says everything, every matter has to be established in the presence of two or three witnesses, which just simply means, what if I came to you with something and I was totally wrong about it? And I wait and I come back, say, uh, I, I say, Tom, will you come with me? Tom's aware of the situation a little bit or he has a heart for it or concern. Tom comes with me to talk to someone who's being a problem. And, and now we're talking about it and Tom is there and Tom goes, oh, you know what, I'm actually seeing a different side of this. Is that possible? 
That's good. That's a good thing. That's what we want. So everything can be established in the presence of two or three witnesses. This is what it says in Proverbs 18, 17. The first one to plead his case seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. So we might think, well, here's the story, and somebody else from another perspective goes, you know, I, I totally see why they would think what they did and not, I don't think anybody's meaning to offend anybody here. Oh, okay, let's be open to that. They're not meaning to crash or, does that make sense? In other words, there's a little bit of a plurality and we come to a deeper understanding of what's going on. And together we remind them if they are off, if they have this pattern, I've seen this before, I've seen this, and it's a perfect example. I went to a church once, uh, a lot of young single people, and uh, there were a lot of guys coming to hit on girls. But some guys were very overt. They were not there for God. They were not there for church. There was a lot of pretty girls and they were just coming to get dates, okay? Um, but some people got a reputation because they didn't just ask for one number. They were asking for numbers every week. And girls were like, I feel really com- uncomfortable. He asked me, he keeps asking me every week, but then I see you asking her. And, and pretty soon leadership's like, what are we gonna do? Well, someone's gotta go talk to the guy. Perfect example. Hey, buddy, Mm-mm, not cool. <laughs> this is God's house and you can't be, can't be hitting on the girls here. You know, it's not gonna work that Oh, yeah, 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 okay, okay, whatever. And the next week, doing the same thing. Same thing. More girls upset, afraid, don't want to come back to church. Does this make sense? There's behavior in God's house. and What do we do? This is going on for a while. You pray about it. You see, okay, so now a couple of guys, I, I saw you, Tom saw you. We, we all see you going after these girls. And we've got to tell you, we can't do it. We don't behave that way in God's house. And we can't roll like that in here. This has to be a safe place. It's got to be a place where people can come and have a moment and encounter God and not have to worry about anything like that. We don't have to worry about trying to walk everyone to the parking lot because someone's got a motive here. Do you understand? You can't behave like that anymore. And if they keep doing it, then you've got to do what the next step does. They won't listen to two. It says at that point you tell it to the church. Some translate this term when you look at the Greek. Some do. You take it to the church leaders. In other words, you try to deal with it. You gave it time. They kept crashing people. You went back with another brother or another sister. You gave it time. They're still crashing people. They're not changing and it's causing chaos. It's causing fallout. There's some shrapnel flying around relationally because somebody doesn't care to get back on track. At that point, that leadership realizes and they say, hey, bud, you can't be here if you do that. Now, I will say this with church discipline. In the early church, there was only one church of Corinth that we know of, one church of Ephesus, one church of Philippi. And there was church discipline like this where somebody keeps messing up and they, they just don't care. They don't want to change. And they keep causing problems where the church says, you know what, bud? You're out. Not because we don't love you, because we do love you. And it says in Corinthians, get a load of, this is pretty insightful, that being in the church under God's design, we're also under his protection. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians. And there was a guy in the church that was living a crazy lifestyle and bragging about it in the church. And they talked to him, they talked to him again. And Paul's like, why, God, why are you guys not doing the third step here? You guys talked to him, you prayed, you talked to him again, he's still walking around bragging to everybody about what he's doing. And it was crazy what he was doing. And they're like, you gotta tell that guy, he's out. He can't be in the family and act like that because we've tried it and tried again. And, and the Bible says, when you put somebody out, this might sound a little harsh to our worldview, but I'm just telling you in the spiritual realm, the Bible says when people come out from God's protection like that, that they're more exposed to the devil because they're outside of God's protection. This is the biblical principle of putting somebody out. It's not to hurt them, it's to wake up and come back and do life God's way. We love you too much. If you have children, you have to discipline them. God disciplines those he loves, not hurt them. Discipline them, get their attention. And in biblical order, this guy's out. Now, in 2 Corinthians, this guy changed his life. I don't want to be out here under the devil. I want to be under God's protection back in the family where I belong. And in 2 Corinthians, the church wasn't letting him back in. And Paul's like, guys, uh-uh-uh. This guy changed his heart. He changed. Would you welcome him back in? You don't want to keep him out there. That's wrong to do that. Does that make sense? And this is what was called church discipline. We don't see it today as often because people just go to a different church. Somebody gets told this, and we've seen that. I had church call me about somebody. It's like, yeah, we talked to him here. <laughs> Quite a few times we kept trying to talk to someone about this thing. Then I get a call from another church. Hey, we got this guy over here. He came from your church. We've talked to him. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry about that. We tried talking to him too, and 
Just, you know what I mean? So some people just have a habit of bouncing around and you know, church discipline doesn't work as well that way. But I would say that when it's somebody's fellowship, it's kind of a moment of clarity when you come to terms with, with some of this stuff. And so uh, here, here's the last step, guys. And if the worship team could come up, we're just going to close out. This went a little long this morning. The last point is if, if it continues, if the pattern continues, go back with a family member. And if it continues, the family should know. If somebody's in the family of believers, lady, and there's ladies and they're acting like a wolf among us, um, you know, the Bible mandates for shepherds that you have to protect the sheep before you can feed the sheep. And if somebody is off in a way that they don't want to change behavior in a kind of way and it's hurtful and it's harmful, we're going we're gonna to hear about it and we're going to deal with it and we're not going to allow that. Uh, we can't be overly passive in this area. We have to be proactive if there's repetitive patterns of unchanged. Again, we're in a grace-filled environment. But the point of the matter is that God's asking all of us to step into this. And so here's the point I want to encourage you. Um, in our life, we can either build walls or build bridges. And if you and I are leaving the 99 and going after one, we have to be willing to step in. I know some of you, this isn't your style. And you might be hearing this and go, well, that's cool. The church is supposed to do that. I don't want to do that. I want to encourage you. Are you your sister's keeper, ladies? Are you your brother's keeper, gentlemen? And God would say the answer is yes, you are. Even if you don't like to be, even if you don't feel like it, even if it's not your personality type, you are your brother's keeper. And we don't fix people, but we lovingly direct. In the same way that if we're off, we want them to lovingly direct. So I just simply want to encourage you guys. Say, Lord, how do I step into helping people get back on track, not being a Pharisee, coming in low, lovingly helping them when they keep crashing me or someone around me again and again. How do I help them? And if I'm crashing people, Lord, it's a two-way street. How do people help me get back? Because I don't want to be going down the, the freeway and the family of believers crashing people, and some, some people do. So I want to close in prayer. Ask God to seal this um, difficult passage in our heart that we would take ownership and live out a grace-filled community in the order that God has for us. Mighty God, we love you and we Thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of your word. And we just ask today, God, that you would help us to um, literally, God, to be our brother's keeper, to be our sister's keeper. So much as it's up to us, we can't fix people, God. We can't heal people. But if we love them enough, show us how to come alongside them, not point to them and blast them or just vent. Come alongside them and have a transparent, humble conversation where there's accountability and there's a brutal honesty, and there's an openness that we can say, listen, there is a better way. What do you think? And hopefully they'll be understanding and people will thank us for it later. Or if we're the ones off, that we wouldn't be hostile. We wouldn't be offended, God. We'd be open to your order here, God. And Lord, I say that because right now there are more quote-unquote Christians um, in this city who are not part of any fellowship anywhere because they're just doing life their own way, really on their own track. And I pray, Lord, we can help people start walking with you again and walking in community again and walking in fellowship again and walking where the life is, God. There's too many one another's in the Bible to leave this stuff out. This is just part of the relational aspect of the kingdom of loving God and loving others. It's a two-way deal. Our faith goes north to you and it goes east and west to the one another's God and this is a central part of the relational breaches that happen and God thank you for the tools to work through them God seal these things in our heart this morning we thank you for that Lord this has been a presentation of Valley Metro Church to hear more messages or to support future podcasts please visit us at valleymetrochurch.com